to the heart of some things that we're going to think about. As we've been looking at this, this letter, 2 Timothy, over the last several weeks, and we're getting here to the very, very end of it. We're concluding things today. And as Paul begins to draw this letter to a close, we've said before, he knows that his life is coming to an end. He knows he doesn't have many days left on the earth. And so, of course, his mind goes to thoughts about judgment. He mentions that day, what will happen. He's thinking about the, the end of things. But he's also thinking about his, his friends and his enemies, the, the people that he lived with and worked with and that he taught. Those that once upon a time fought with him right by his side, but now for whatever reason, they're either nowhere to be found or they're actually working against that which is good and holy. And so we're going to, to look at some of these things together today and see what it is that, that we can glean, lessons that we can learn from Paul reflecting. Because that's, a, that's something that we're prone to do as, as we get settled and we start maybe taking inventory of our lives and, and we look back and re we reflect. But Paul's really being forced. Here he is in prison, in chains. You've got lots of time to reflect. He's reading and writing and working and thinking and praying. But as he gets to the end of his life, he also thinks about those relationships and, and where those people are and what they're doing, what they've meant to him, what they've meant to the kingdom, and how even in his, his final days, he can encourage them and help them to be more like God would have them to be. So what lessons does the Lord intend for, for us, for you and for me? What does the Lord want us to understand from Paul's closing remarks here? Well, as we think about what it might be, let's, let's think this way first of all. I think that right here is where we should start. We're thinking about Paul's friends and Paul's enemies. Christian fellowship is a good thing. And it should be, it should be fostered and encouraged and helped to develop and grow and to be deepened. What I want us to do here is, before we look at some of these specific verses, I really do want to take the time to read several verses here together. And then we'll go back and, and look specifically because I want you to hear all these different names sort of in, in context. Hear these different names flowing together as, as Paul was, was writing them out and thinking about them. And as, as we read them together, be in your mind thinking about some that are helpful and some that are hurtful and, and some that need encouragement and others that are big sources of encouragement. And as we go through these different names, try to move beyond how unusual they might sound to you. These folks won't sound like they're from Barron County, but they're just like you and me. And you're going to see yourself in some of them. Some of them are hindrances to the gospel. May, not, they, may that not be you and me. Some of them are great encouragers. May that be you and me. Some of them are the, are the glue that, that causes things to stick together. Let's just read and see if we see ourselves here. This is what Paul says to Timothy. We're starting at, at verse 9 together. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and, and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, bring those parchments. 
Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me. He strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles and they, they, they might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesophorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So let's think about it here. Here's the first thing I want you to think about. As we read through all those names, you can get the sense and you can readily feel it without me having to explain anything to you, I hope, as we read through it. Paul loves being around people. Especially does Paul love being around those who have a, a like precious faith. Paul really, really loves being around people who love the Lord. And so in those moments when that's been taken from him, like this, here I am in chains. And so he's pleading with Timothy. See there in verse 9? Do your best to come and be with me. I don't like not being together. Verse 21, he says, hurry here. Hurry and get here. In fact, he's talking about the bad weather's coming in. Hurry and get here before the bad weather sets in and you can't get here. That reminds me of something that happened in, in our life, the Warrens' life, just this very day. We have some friends that we've been planning on coming to be with us. Lord willing, they'll be here around 4 o'clock this afternoon. And they were going to stay with us tonight before they traveled on to another place. But this morning, as we talked with them, they said, we're going to have to leave after services tonight because of the bad weather coming in. And so we've got to go on and get somewhere else before the bad weather sets in. Immediately when we had that little bit of texting going back and forth this morning, I thought about this passage. Paul said to Timothy, hurry and get here before the bad weather sets in. I really want to see you. And so I'm thinking, you've all had those same conversations with people. Because you have people that you love and you want to be with them. You don't want them to be separated from you. Well, there's lots of different ways in which it's sweet and good to be together as Christians. Let's, let's list just a few real quick. Like we're doing here this morning, it is good to worship together. It's good to be able to come together here in this place and focus our hearts and minds. I love the way Alan said it a moment ago in his prayer. That here we are, all these different people, but we're focusing our minds and our hearts together in one kind of way, specifically on Jesus the Christ. But we're doing it together by praying together and singing together and reading together. There's something very, very special about singing and praying with your Christian family. There's something really special about partaking of the Lord's Supper with your Christian family, especially as, as together we reflect upon the love that Christ had for us, the sacrifice he made for us, the way his death changed everything for us and we're doing it together like a family you know that there's people in this room that they've had struggles that they've overcome and thanks to jesus there's others that as we partake of the supper together they are going through those struggles right then and we do this together 
It's special. It's special that we're all together, sinners saved by the grace of God, and get to worship Him together. We're fortified and we are strengthened, and God is glorified in our worship. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's what he's being, what's being said in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. There's a connection between our corporate worship and our faithfulness. There's a connection between our, our worshiping together and our being strong in the faith. Because when we remove ourselves, we separate ourselves and just get washed away in the flow of the world, our faith begins to, to wane and weaken. But when we gather together, he said there in verse 23, we hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering as we're gathered together and encourage each other and stir each other up. There's something special about worshiping together. Something special about working together. He mentions uh, down there in verse 19, Greet Prisca and Aquila. We know Priscilla and Aquila from Acts 18. He even mentions them uh, in Romans 16 at verse 3. Romans 16, 3, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, he says. These two people, this man and this woman, they risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's house. When Christians gather together and pool their energy to the glory of God, great things happen. People are uplifted, encouraged. People are helped out of their difficult circumstances. Light is shined on Jesus, and many are brought to the glory of the Lord, brought to the glory of the Lord in obedience and restoration, and, and all of these good things happen when we work together. But then there's just plain old recreation. There's worshiping together, there's working together, and then there's just what you might call just being together. Just being together. Eating, talking, playing. Paul said of Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1.16, look, look, flip back, 2 Timothy 1.16, he says of Onesiphorus, he refreshed me. He was, he was a refreshment to my soul by the way he was with me and, and encouraged me and strengthened me. And so here he calls him out again and says of him there in verse 19, greet him too, because he was one of those that he refreshed me. And so what Paul's doing here in this first point is that Paul's begging Timothy to come be with him. He's begging Timothy to, to be there, and he mentions those who aren't there because it matters. We know that if we're going to be around people, we're going to have problems, we're going to have disagreements. But he's focused here on how sweet and special it is to be together. So he says, Timothy, come be here with me. Because it's been magnified as I've been in these chains and been deserted by so many others. It's been magnified to me and impressed upon my soul how important it is that we be together. So let me impress it upon you now. Don't take Christian worship for granted. Don't take times of fellowship and working together and laughing together. Don't take those times for granted. We learn just how special and important it is from this, this letter, but we learn it from our life too. But we know that when we're together with people for any amount of time, because of our sinfulness, I won't even say it this way, I won't even say because of people's sinfulness, I'll say because of my sinfulness, 
You know what I need whenever I'm around people for a little while? I need forgiveness. <laughs> I need grace. I need mercy to be shown to me. And that's, that's the very next thing that we see here. Is that the lesson we learn from, from Paul's friends and enemies that he mentions is that to be able to forgive people is a sign of growth and maturity. Two examples we're going to use here. One's from verse 11. Look at 2 Timothy 4.11. Now this might not sound like much at first unless you know the backstory. And I know many of you do know the backstory, but let's, let's emphasize it. When he says here in verse 11 that Luke's with me, he says, but what I want you to do, Timothy, is that when you make your way to me, and I know you will, when you make your way to me, bring Mark with you. You might call him John Mark. He's referred to as John Mark in a few places in Scripture. He says, bring Mark with you because Mark is really useful. He's really helpful to, to the ministry that we have going here. Now, the background. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. John Mark joins Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. Acts 12, 25. He's with them on this missionary journey. But then you see in Acts 13, 13, Mark leaves them. It says, here go Paul and Barnabas this way, and Mark goes home. He went home. We don't know why. Didn't tell us why. We just know he goes home. Sounds innocent enough. But then later on, as you go to Acts 15, about verse 36, and Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on another missionary journey. Barnabas says, hey, let's go get John Mark again. And Paul says, no way am I taking that guy on the next trip. Not happening. And so as you read there in, in the balance of, of Acts 15, it says they had a, a sharp disagreement. Barnabas and John Mark go one way, and Paul goes another way on their journey. Maybe Mark needed to mature. Don't know. Maybe Paul needed to mature. Maybe it's the case that they both needed to. Because it's so powerful here to see the change. From Paul saying, I don't want that guy as part of my mission team, to Paul saying, that guy is super valuable to our mission work. Some of us need to learn from this, and I'm including myself. We need to learn that sometimes people can change. Because sadly, some of us, no matter the change and growth in others, some of us would never, ever, ever admit that we were wrong. Some of us would never, ever, ever admit that someone else had matured and, and grown. And that's to our shame. Because forgiveness is a sign of maturity. If I can move to a point where I see that, that things have changed in you and I can forgive you, and you see that things have changed in me and you can forgive me, this is what Christian fellowship and Christian brothers and sisters are to do for each other. And so Paul exemplifies that. He lives it out. Bring Mark the very one I said before I didn't want to work with, now I know, because I've grown and he's grown, now I know we can work together. Please bring him. But then there's this. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, he speaks of that time. It must be that first time he goes and stands before the emperor. Can you imagine standing before those that have the power of life and death in their hands and having to do it alone? He says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Don't you just know that for most of us, the next line there would be this. So how dare they? So I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. They left me alone. I can't wait to laugh at them when they're alone sometime. 
But that's not at all what he says. He says, nobody came to my defense. They all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Lord, don't hold it against them. I don't know about you, but I'm impressed by the strength it took to say that. More than that, I'm impressed by the strength it took to mean that. It would have been so easy to hold a grudge. And most people probably would have said to Paul, you know, pat him on the back, brother, I don't even blame you for being so bitter. The Lord calls his people to something higher. I think of Ephesians 4.32, be kind to each other, be tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you've been washed in the blood of Christ, if you've been forgiven by Jesus the Christ, how dare you withhold that from others? We're reminded of a couple of really powerful examples that fit this description. Paul says, I was alone, but I don't want it held against them. I don't, Lord, I don't want you to hold that against them. Jesus from the cross, Luke 23, verse 34. As he's hanging there, or even as he was being brutally attached there, can you just imagine Jesus saying, Father, forgive the people who are doing this. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this to their charge. Acts 7, verse 60, when Stephen is having the life pummeled right out of him by stones. People are literally taking rocks to execute Stephen. It says he was falling to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he drew his last breath and died. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at verse 5, when describing what love is to us, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says love is not resentful. Or maybe your translation says love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score and say, you've done this, this, this in me, and so I'm going to hold that over your head until I sufficiently feel like you have properly asked for and begged for and pleaded for forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that God's people do because it's what God does. Paul's friends and enemies taught him about fellowship and about forgiveness, but also about the necessity sometimes of offering warnings. Sometimes we have to say, this action must change or else there will be very serious consequences. Look at verse 10, 2 Timothy 4.10. Speaking of Demas, of Demas, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone off to Thessalonica. The world is enticing. We know it is. The world is enticing and sin, you can't lie to yourself and lie to everyone else. We know that sin absolutely at times offers very temporary pleasure. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty five. Moses gave up the pleasure of sin for a season to be with God's people. It's always heartbreaking to see somebody choose the world over the Lord. Few of us would probably say that we love the world more than we love Jesus. But lots of us would have actions that say we love the world more than we love Jesus. In Titus chapter 1 at verse 6, the Bible says that there are those who profess to know God, but they deny God by the things they do. They deny Him by their works. Selfishness and sin must be called just exactly what it is. And so Paul shares this news here in 2 Timothy 4.10 about Demas with a heavy heart. He's not 
thankful that Demas has gone away. He's sad that Demas has gone away. And, he, and he's saying these things to, to Timothy, not out of gossip, but so that Timothy will be praying for him and knowing that this, this is a man that needs to be brought back to the Lord. It's one thing to just you know, move away geographically. It's something else to walk away from the Lord. And that's what's happened here. But what about this other guy? What about in about verse 14, this guy named Alexander? Look at verse 14, 2 Timothy 4, 14. There's Alexander the coppersmith. So Demas has just walked away from the work, walked away from the Lord, gone off to enjoy the pleasure of sin that the world offers. Paul's praying he'll come home. But then there's this guy, Alexander. He doesn't just walk away from the Lord. He doesn't just walk away from the things they were doing. He's going to start adamantly and intentionally working against the Lord. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed the message. Now those are harsh-sounding words, aren't they? And at first glance, if, if you read the text like, like I do, at first glance, don't you go, now wait a minute, what about this guy who said, everybody deserted me, but don't hold that against them. And then this guy who works against this, and you're like, Lord, get him. What's, what's happened here? What's the difference in these two? Well, I think there's a very clear difference. Two items to make note of to understand the difference between the two things here. Here's the first one. The message of the gospel and the purity and the health of the church, this is what matters. People are going to hurt us. You can walk away from me. You can't walk away from Jesus. You can, you can say things to hurt me, and I am to forgive you. Don't be saying things about Jesus in the church. Don't be opposing the message that's being preached and taught. So notice, Paul says, he did me great harm, but I believe the emphasis is on how it was done. He says, he did me great harm like this. He opposed the message. That's what Alexander did. He opposed the message. Any retaliation was not going to be, here's the second thing. So the first problem is that Alexander opposed the message. It wasn't just that he, he and Paul got crossways. He said Alexander fought against the truth of the gospel. The second thing is this. Paul didn't say, I can't wait to get him. Paul didn't say, Timothy, help me. Let's come up with a way to get him. He didn't say, boy, I can't wait. I've set a trap for him. Boy, he's going to fall in it. Do you remember what he said there in the text? The Lord's going to take care of him. The Lord's going to take care of him. He doesn't say, I'll show him. He says, the Lord will take care of those who oppose the gospel. And so, of course, Timothy's got to be smart, not him put himself or the church in harm's way. But I think this is a reiteration of what's in Romans 12 at verse 17. Listen to Romans 12, 17, beginning. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul is leaving it to the Lord. Alexander opposed the message, but the Lord will take care of that. Beware, Timothy, be careful. Warnings are necessary. Sinners must be warned to repent before it's too late. The church has to be warned about false teachers and, and those who would divide us. And all must be warned that the Lord is returning for judgment on that day. Then there's this, and this is just a quick one. 
Just, just a quick message here. Look at verse 13. One of my favorite little overlooked verses in the Bible where Paul says in verse 13, what I want you to do is when you come, bring my cloak. You know, it's going to be cold. The cold weather's coming. I, I need a cloak. I don't care for that verse too much. I'm never cold, it seems like. But the next part I like. He says, when you come, bring those books and the parchments. Bring the scrolls and the documents. Paul was one of those guys that no matter where he was, even in prison, he wanted to be surrounded by his books. It seems to be the case that he's telling us so much more than just, I like books. You know what I hear him saying here? I'm never going to stop working. I'm never going to stop learning. I'm never going to stop writing. I'm never going to stop thinking. I'm never going to try and stop helping the church. I'm never going to stop growing and learning and teaching until I'm dead. He said, I know that my, the time of my departure has come. I've run the race. I've finished the fight. I'm done, guys. But until I'm done, done, I'm going to keep reading and writing. So make sure those things get here. I'm going to think and I'm going to write until I'm just gone. And so for you and for me, there's that, there's that message there that you and I are to never stop learning, never stop growing, never stop working. I don't care how sick you've gotten, how old you've gotten, how young you are. You are not at a point yet where you're to stop. You are to keep thinking about the things of God. You are to keep writing and helping and teaching others about the things of God until we are praying over and sitting there in a place where we are memorializing your life. Because until that point, you're to be thinking and learning and doing those things of the Lord. So bring those parchments, bring those scrolls, bring those books, and I'm going to get after it. And that brings us to the last thing. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen. In fact, for the New Testament Christian, for the one who's been bought by the blood of Jesus, again, as Alan mentioned in his prayer, for the one who's been bought by the Lord, dying is a glorious thing. Paul would say in other places, in, in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, he speaks of how to live is Christ, to die is gain. It'd be better, I don't know if I'm going to stay here or go on, but to go on and be with the Lord, that'd be so much better. And what he's saying here in 2 Timothy 4, about verse 18, the Lord's going to rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. His faithfulness. I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I've, I've done these things. I've been faithful to the Lord all the time. I didn't find some circumstance where here I gave in and there I gave in. He says, of course, there were times where I sinned. There were times I, I failed. But I recognize what I'm going to do with my life is be faithful. This is Revelation 2.10. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord even if it means death. I always choose faithfulness first. Always choose faithfulness first. And if that hastens death, so be it. But you choose faithfulness to the Lord above any and all other things. And that's exactly what he says here. I trust God. I trust Him to see me through. I trust Him to, to bring me into His heavenly kingdom forever and ever, and I can dwell with Him and be finally at peace. But my choice, no matter what else is going on in life, is I choose to be faithful to Him because I trust Him to be always faithful to me. That might put my family in difficult circumstances sometime, but I choose Him and I'm faithful to Him because I know He'll be faithful to me. That might make me make difficult choices sometimes, 
but I'm going to be faithful to him because I know he's going to be faithful to me. And so he says, as I draw these things to a close, he says, I'm not doing anything and everything I can to prolong, prolong my life. I'm doing everything and, every, anything and everything I can to be faithful to the Lord. And so even when I draw this last breath, I trust him to see me through. What a blessing that will be. These are just a few of the, the things that we learn from what Paul learned about his friends and from his friends. And as you and I draw closer to death, we should be thinking about eternity and, and we should be thinking about the relationships that we've had along the way. The life that's in Christ Jesus is the best, most fulfilling life. The life that's in Christ Jesus is the only one that leads to eternity with God. And so it's, it should be our prayer that we will be the influence on our friends and the people that are around us. We should be a force for good. But as we think about being a force for good on our friends, let me ask you this question. Let's, let's, let's transition over to the Judgment Day question. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? What you should be doing is encouraging the people around you, forgiving them before they ask, warning them about Judgment Day, and then living every single moment as if you truly do trust God. You do these things, being submissive to the Lord Jesus, you'll be prepared to meet Him. So let me ask you this morning, how can we help you? Have you obeyed the gospel, been washed in the blood of Jesus, forgiven of your sins? Have you, have you lived as a, a powerful force for good for the people around you? Have, you? have you learned the lessons from Paul and his friends and his enemies here? If there's any way we can encourage you or help you, we plead with you, implore you to come while we stand and sing.